opportunity to be together. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness and all the amazing things you're doing in our lives. We just give you all the honor and glory and praise for this opportunity to be together and just fellowship and get to know one another even more. We thank you for that privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow. Welcome again. So grateful to have all you guys here in this quite interesting weather we're getting, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah, but thank God. I mean, it's pretty, it's kind of nice, isn't it? It's only minus four or something at least, so I think. But anyway, yeah, so man, I'm excited. Maybe I'm the only one, but uh, I spent... A <laughs> For those of you who don't know, if you're new here, we've been uh, on a series on the kingdom of God, and why I'm excited is, if those of you know, we've taken, we've taken quite a bit of time to sort of build a foundation, which I think is pretty important, and you'll see why as we go on um, explaining what the kingdom of God meant to the people in the early church, because their understanding of what that looked like and what it was going to look like completely, completely uh, influenced, of course, uh, their perspective on everything. So to understand Jesus, to understand the New Testament writers, really important to understand this stuff. And the reason I'm excited is because if you were here a few weeks ago, I think it would have been January, uh, I don't know, three weeks ago, I actually did a message uh, finally reconciling this mystery of how is it that the kingdom of God is both present and future? Because Jesus talks about it in both ways. The New Testament writers talk about it in both ways. And so finally, we're moving from there into, and today, we're going to actually start talking about some of the other New Testament writers, because we've been really focusing on the teachings of Jesus up until now, for the most part, and I want to show you how this, how this eschatological perspective of the kingdom is already here and not yet totally revolutionized and influenced all of the New Testament writers. Now, because there's some new people here, if you're like, what did he just say? Eschatology just simply means study of the end. The word eschaton means the end, capital E, end, the, very, the end of time. And so anytime you hear that word, it's just an easy way to say the end or whatever. And so uh, that's important, but you'll see why, because I use that word uh, as the nature of this series a lot. And so anyway, so today, uh, message, I don't know if this is what I'm going to call it, but really this is what we're going to be talking about, the kingdom of God living in the radical middle, the already, not yet, with an emphasis on Paul the Apostle. So the kingdom of God, as you guys know by now, is the rule of God. It's the reign of God. Okay, so his, it's God's reign, his will, his divine sovereignty over the affairs of humankind. That's the kingdom of God. It's not a geographical location, uh, a location rather, it's his reign. And so when Jesus said the kingdom of God here, and you could actually say, he could as, uh, you could translate the rule of God is here. Okay, the rule of God is here. So God's reign manifests itself both in the future and present. And like I said a few weeks ago, that's the message I really used to try and reconcile this, uh, talking about the mysteries of the kingdom. If you guys are here, uh, you'll remember that. Otherwise, you can go online to our website, cetfottawa.com. We have all the archives of this if you're interested uh, in checking out that message. But this is why the Gospels and the whole, really, New Testament talks about the kingdom is entering it both now in the present and, and in the future. So 
the coming, the, the, now the important part of this that I've talked about last time is that the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom with Jesus and the spirit resulted in a radically altered eschatological perspective in, New, in the New Testament believers. Because if you remember, we spent the first two messages talking about how the Jewish understanding of the coming of the new age, the Messiah and all of that, how, how throughout the Old Testament and then in the intertestamental period totally influenced their perspective. So when John was saying, when he came on the scene, was like, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Everyone was on the same page, knew what he's talking about. Now what happened is because they were expecting the end to come and totally, completely end history and then the kingdom of God would come and at that point all evil would go completely eradicated like a big kablooey and the end would happen because it didn't happen in that way Jesus came as a humble suffering servant saying the kingdom's here and it totally went against all of their expectations that cha- they had to the early church had to completely change their idea of what that meant that the kingdom is here now and yet it's not yet And that altered eschatological perspective influenced every single New Testament writer. In fact, this is the one, this is the framework where everything fits in in the New Testament. And you'll see that. That's why I'm excited today because we've been talking about that with Jesus. But you're going to see how especially Paul and a lot of the writers like John and others uh, talk about it in this way. This already not yet. So the Old Testament looked forward to this promised new covenant, which uh, would take place in, remember, the latter days, which has now been fulfilled in Christ in the Spirit. Okay? So when we come to the New Testament, the quote-unquote latter days, what the prophets called the latter days, is now understood as, in this thoroughly eschatological way as the last days. You see that in the New Testament all the time, right? So when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, they, they quoted Joel 2.28. And they're like, hey, this is the fulfillment of that promise because the Holy Spirit's here and that meant the end is here because the Holy Spirit was one of the things that they were looking for. That was the demarcation. When the Holy Spirit came back, that, was, that meant the end was here. So because God had already manifested his reign... His will, his kingdom, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, we can experience the life of the kingdom now. And that's good news. That's why Jesus was so excited. Hey, I got good news for you guys. Good news. The kingdom of God is here. Good news. Not bad news, right? John the Baptist was talking about in terms of bad news. He's like, hey, guys, the kingdom of God's near. You better repent because the wrath of God's here. It's going to be here any minute. Right? And then Jesus totally flipped that upside down and said, actually, no, when the kingdom, because the kingdom's here, that's good news. You can experience the life of the future now in the present. The blessings, all of the stuff that they've been waiting for in that quote-unquote eschaton, you can experience now because Jesus came. So, the, on the other side, the end had only begun. So they're expecting this Bam, end of history, that was the end. Then this kingdom of God, the new age would come. All evil would go, all sickness would go, the overthrow of Satan. But it didn't happen that way. It came as a mustard seed in Jesus Christ. And it totally, totally opposed to their expectations. Okay, so it had only begun, though, in Jesus Christ. So we're, we're still awaiting this final event. The second coming of Christ, at which we too will experience the resurrection and transformation of our bodies. 
So right now, we're talking about the radical middle. We're living in between the times, okay? We're living in the, because already the future's begun. Not yet has it been consummated. It's been inaugurated, but not consummated. Inaugurated with the first coming of Jesus. It's going to be consummated at the second coming of Jesus. Now we're living between the times. So I already said that, but just as there's two advents of Christ, the first and second coming, in the same way, uh, you speak of the two manifestations of the kingdom. The kingdom's already here, but it's not yet in its fullness. So therefore, the kingdom's already not yet. Jesus coming set the future in motion. The kingdom of God is here. You can live the life of the future now. You're supposed to live the life of the future now, in fact. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you in the present tense. You're supposed to live the life of the future, the life of the kingdom here and now in the present evil age. Okay, so that's the key point, really. The coming age is dawn. We await the consummation. As Christians, we're called to be living the life of the future now in the present. Totally, now... In other words, to use the fancy word, we're supposed to live as completely, thoroughly eschatological people. We're supposed to live as as the people of the future, now in the present, to show the people in the present what the future looks like, what heaven looks like. We're supposed to bring heaven to earth and be citizens of heaven so that people look at us and say, wow, that's what heaven's like, that's what I want. That's what we're actually called to do as Christians. So I gave you this, uh, uh, for those visual people, I just, you'll, now this becomes important. This is a simplified visual, but you'll see how everything fits into this. I'm going to talk about Paul today and probably next time and who knows how many times, but for sure today and probably next time. And you'll see that this, if you can get a hold of this, not to say this is comprehensive, but if you can get a hold of this, then you'll, a lot of scriptures that are kind of mysterious will make sense to you. You'll be like, oh, okay, and and you'll see that today even, hopefully. I'm going to show you some scriptures, and it all fits into this. So the simplified, so essentially, you'll see at the fall, right, that's when sin entered. That's right, Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And then the kingdom of darkness, in other words, this age, that was what it was known as. If you remember, this present evil age in the apocalyptic under the Jewish understanding was that meant this is Satan's age. Okay. This is Satan's age. Evil's prevalent. Sin's prevalent. Injustice is prevalent. Sickness is prevalent. Okay. That's because this is Satan's age. And what they thought is the kingdom of heaven would come. God would totally overthrow Satan. All that would go away and it'd be completely amazing and good. A hundred percent. Okay. But then what happened is the first coming of Christ, the age to come did come. The kingdom of God did come, but not in the way they're expecting. Because this stuff is still happening. There's still sin. There's still sickness. There's still disease. But the overthrow of Satan began with the coming of Christ. Where the king is, the kingdom is, and Jesus came, and he started the overthrow of Satan, and that's why he went around preaching the kingdom was here, healing the sick, casting out demons, as a demonstration, the overthrow of Satan has begun. Now we're called to be the army, that's what we're called to do, to continue that as the army of God overthrowing Satan by casting out demons, by healing the sick, to continue in this war, so to speak, of the overthrow of Satan until Jesus comes. And at that point in the second coming, 
then the complete overthrow of Satan is going to happen completely. And we gave the analogy of D-Day and V-Day in World War II, if you remember. D-Day was the decisive battle of World War II, hence D-Day. In other words, that's the day Hitler was defeated. The war ended, essentially. Though it didn't end, there was still 11 months until V-Day, which is Victory Day, of a mopping up operation. And that's the period of time we're in the already not yet. The, the end has been determined by the beginning. That is going to happen, guaranteed. But right here and now, we're still in the in-between mopping up operation where we're supposed to be spreading the kingdom everywhere we go. Okay. Now, from the New Testament perspective, the whole Christian experience and theology has this eschatological tension at its, at its uh, basic framework. Okay, so that, that graph I showed you, essentially, the already not yet. In fact, if, the reason this is so important is if we could get back to the sense of urgency and the understanding that we're a completely eschatological people living the future in the present, we could get back to the early church because that's how they were living, that sense of urgency of the already not yet, the hope of the future, but we're living it now. Right? And if we can get back to that, realizing that's what we're called to be and that's what we're called to do, then I believe that would be revolutionary in how we approach life even. The problem is we're 2,000 years removed from that understanding. So we spent what? This is message number eight, essentially giving you the framework that they just had as a presupposition, right? As their understanding. But anyway, today I want to look at how this altered, quote-unquote, eschatological perspective that came with Jesus became the basic theological framework in subsequent New Testament writers. Today we're focusing on Paul. So, the all, Paul's already not yet perspective. Okay, so for Paul, the future is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. No question. The future is certain, period. There's no question how the, the battle ends, right? How the war ends. We know it. Okay? But its certainty is based on these two essential eschatological realities that are already present now and that thus guarantee the future. There's two things. And this comes from Paul's Jewish understanding. And this is, you'll remember, if you have, weren't here, if you go back to the first two messages, especially the second one, we talked about not only the Old Testament understanding of what the end would look like, but the intertestamental period, the time between Malachi and John the Baptist. And so when Jesus came on the scene, this is what they, most of them believed. They were looking for the resurrection and the gift of the Spirit. Those are the two things that were the demarcation. That's how the evidence that the end has come. And you'll see how much that affected Paul the Apostle. Those two things over and over again. Those are the two things. Hey, the presence, the future's already come in the present, but it's not yet. But they guarantee the fact that it is going to come in its fullness. So for Paul, the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, God himself set the future in motion so that everything in the present is determined by the appearance of the future. I know it's, <laughs> it sounds funny, but, the, but those two things, the future broke into the present. And now we have to live in light of that. Okay, so the resurrection of Christ marked the beginning of the end and the turning of the ages. Now, uh, I was tempted to give you a whole bunch of scriptures, and I have to cut a bunch out for the sake of time, but we'll probably talk about them in subsequent weeks. But I want to show you this prayer. 
Okay, because remember this, okay, the resurrection completely influenced If you remember, this is why the road to Damascus experience for Paul in the book of Acts was so revolutionary. Because he encountered the what? Risen Christ. Jesus Christ raised from the dead and he encountered him. In other words, the resurrection happened. Okay, as a Jew, he was persecuting the church, but when he encountered the risen Christ, in Galatians, he said he had to go for three years in the desert to really just, to, his whole understanding of everything was unraveled and he had to come to terms with it because the resurrection happened with Jesus. And he knew what that meant. That meant the kingdom is here. So he had to completely just, uh, his whole world got flipped upside down, of course. But he had to come to terms with this. Now, and, and you'll see it throughout his writings. But I want to show you this prayer. You guys have probably heard me pray this before. It's one of the apostolic prayers that I like. Okay, so this is from Ephesians 1, 1 uh, 16 to 23. Remember, we're talking about the resurrection, but we're also talking about the spirit. You can just listen if you want. But I have, this is Paul saying, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order, this is why he's even praying that, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He's talking about the future, the concept. We'll talk about that later. The riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now he goes on. That power that's resident in you if you believe, if you're a Christian, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Notice the resurrection. He's talking about the same power that raised Christ from the dead is resident in you. Okay? It's resident in you. So, he seated Christ now in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God. Now, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that's invoked, look at this, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Remember that graph I showed you, right? Now, we're living from that power of the age to come Okay, because Christ has already raised and he's seated at the right hand of God. That power is resident in us. He's above all of this stuff, all the rulers, all the authorities, all the dominions, all the powers in this age and the age to come. And we live with that power right now. That is so hard to grapple with that that's why Paul's saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so you would come to terms with this. We're supposed to live our lives with the understanding that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is resident in us, and we're supposed to live from that. He's seated at the right hand of God now. The power, the same power that did that, that raised him, that gave him that is resident in us, and we have to live the life of the future now in the present age. Okay, so God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The resurrection is the key. The resurrection is the key in that. It, that totally shifts your perspective if you get a hold of that. The fact that the resurrection already happened. The end's already here and we're supposed to live from the future now because we have that same power in us. So the resurrection, I want to focus on this for a little bit because like I said, these two things 
Two things that totally influence Paul's perspective. The fact that the eschaton's already happened. The future's already here now. And these two things are proof of it. The first one I already said is the resurrection. I'm going to just show you some scriptures that in light of this, hopefully it'll help you uh, make more sense of it. So the resurrection is, like I said, an essentially a future event. And this idea comes from Paul's Jewish apocalyptic heritage. This is the one event that marked the final day. And someday we'll probably go in more detail, but you might remember back in the day when we talked about Ezekiel 36, for instance, when Paul, the first time the Bible mentions, uh, not the first time, actually, the second time the Bible mentions the new covenant, he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you, okay? And I'm gonna, uh, then you're going to be moved to obey all my laws. That's Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. And they raise from the dead by the spirit. It says, I blow the spirit or the breath of the spirit in you. And they raise him from the, so the resurrection and the gift of the spirit, the two things that mark the age to come, the new covenant. So we will know when the eschaton arrives, when the resurrection of the dead happens. And that's the one clear event where you could say the resurrection happened. That means the end is here. So what Paul came to understand is the resurrection already happened in Christ. Okay, it happened. It's the resurrection of Christ that marks all of our final resurrections. Okay, so in a sense, because the resurrection's already happened, our resurrection has already taken place in Christ's resurrection. Okay, it's a certain fact, the way Paul talks about it. Because that happened, that's the beginning of the end, the turning of the ages happened, therefore, every single one of us guaranteed are going to be raised from the dead as well. So I'll just show you some scriptures uh, to go along with this. Okay, so through the death and resurrection of Christ, God's already brought the whole cosmos under, under judgment. Everything. So Paul uses language like 1 Corinthians 7.31. Those of us are those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For the world in its present form is passing away. The whole world comes under judgment. It's on its way out because of the resurrection. It's passing away. The current order of things. Paul says that again in 1 Corinthians 2.6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. Notice the language, this age and the age to come all throughout the New Testament, not of the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. They're on their way out. Because of the resurrection, we're living in the between the times of the already not yet, the, not, the, the present evil age is on its way out because of the resurrection. The judgment's already come. At the same time, Jesus secured both the present and the future for those of us who are his through the resurrection. Now, I'm going to give you a, a, a decent portion of scripture, but you'll see this in 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about the resurrection and the age to come and all of this stuff. I'm just going to give you a portion of the scripture starting in verse 16. There's this heresy in the Corinthian church that the resurrection is... is not going to happen, that, the, that people aren't raised from the dead. And Paul's confronting this. He's like, wait a minute. If no one's raised from the dead, that means Jesus himself wasn't raised for the dead. Okay, so it's an important, he's essentially said, this is a very fundamental, important doctrine because of what I've been telling you about. It's so important that that's the one thing, right? The resurrection is the one thing that guarantees the final consummation, that and the gift of the Spirit, that the end has already come. 
Can we, so in other words, we have to believe that. So anyway, so for if the dead aren't raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's how important it is. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Okay? Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's how important and fundamental the resurrection is. If it didn't happen, we're, we're pitiful. We, we are, it's pathetic if that didn't happen, okay? So he, that's a, he's like, this is such a crucial matter in terms of our faith. But look at what he says in the next verse, verse 20. But Christ has indeed raised from the dead the first fruits, important language, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. As for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all have been made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, the second coming, those who belong to him, then the end will come. Right? The final end. When he hands over the kingdom to God, we're talking about the kingdom of God, and the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. I just want to interject this here because it's so important, the language of the first fruits. It's an important metaphor that Paul uses. With this already not yet perspective, right? That's essentially what he's saying. The first fruits. So, oh, next slide, please. Uh, or is this, yeah, that slide. So, the first fruits of the resurrection. By using this imagery, he understands the resurrection of Christ makes our resurrection both inevitable and necessary. Inevitable because if in Christ being the first fruits, he's already made it inevitable that those who are already secured in him will be raised at his in resurrection. So it's just a done deal. Okay, but then he goes on in the next verse and he says, for he must reign, Jesus, until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, and that's why our resurrection's not only inevitable, it's necessary. Because death isn't just our enemy. Death is God's enemy, according to this scripture, right? In fact, that's the last enemy that'll be defeated. And once death is defeated, once we've raised from the dead, death has ceased, God's last enemy is done, talking about the war now, and V-Day happens. Death is his last enemy, okay? And so our resurrection's not only, it's necessary for that to happen, okay? So, so Paul's saying, hey, look, this is absolutely going to happen. It's a fundamental part of our faith. And the fact that it's happened to Jesus, he's the first fruits, is evidence it's going to happen in its fullness at the consummation to the second coming of Christ. Because death is a distortion. It's a disruption that art, uh, entered the garden, and it's totally contrary to his will. And we're talking about the kingdom of God, the rule of God, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not his will that we die. Okay? And so for the kingdom of heaven to be manifest in his fullness, there can be no death. That's why our resurrection is absolutely important to our faith. It spells the end to death because it's going to cease and God's final enemy is going to be destroyed when that happens. In light of Christ's resurrection, in our ultimate resurrection, Paul actually taunts death. <laughs> actually, Paul's really bold. Okay, so this is later on in the chapter. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, mortality rather, then the saying is that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Look at what he says. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory, talking about V-Day, victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's done away with sin and death, right? So, this is how, because of Paul's understanding and perspective, that changes everything. This is, what I, this is Paul's motto to life. This is how he lives. I love this verse. This is Philippians 121. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This isn't a death wish. As some people think Paul was being morbid and suicidal, no way. This is a perspective of one whom the sting of death has been absolutely removed because Paul knows it. Whether I live or die, it's to the glory of God. In fact, he's in prison and he doesn't know the outcome of the trial in Philippians. And he says, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I think I'm going to live, but that's for your sake. I would rather die. It's better by far because then I'm with Christ, right? He has such a revelation and perspective how the, the resurrection absolutely changed everything. And that's how we're supposed to live life because we are in a battle, We are in between D-Day and V-Day, so to speak. And if you remember, more Americans died in those 11 months than in all the years combined in World War II. Bloody battle, battles. Okay, we're in that right now, right? Satan's been cast to the earth and he knows his time's short, so he's wreaking havoc on the saints. But it doesn't matter. Whether we live or die, doesn't matter, because we win. That changes everything. We win, period. No question. How do we know we win? Resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Spirit. We're going to get to that in a minute. So Paul's already been stamped with eternity by the death and resurrection of Christ, and that's how we're supposed to live. Stamped by eternity. Believers, therefore, live between the times, the radical middle, with regard to the two resurrections. Remember, you showed the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ in that diagram. We have already been raised with Christ, which guarantees our future bodily resurrection. I want to show you this. So, so this is like, you read stuff in Paul, and it's like, what are you talking about? Because he talks past tense, present tense, future tense. And we're going to talk about that more next week, especially with salvation. Because it's in light of this whole perspective of the future is already here, yet not yet. We're living between the times. So just look, for instance, in Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. This is that famous, I cut it off short, but in verse 8, you've been saved by grace, not by works. Anyway, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Past tense already. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Notice he's talking in the present tense. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What are you talking about, Paul? Remember, living the life of the future now. We are seated in Christ in the heavenly realms in the age to come. Okay? Present tense already. But look at this. Verse 7. In order that the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's the future, not yet. You see that? In just three verses. Already, not yet. Past tense, present tense, future tense. We're living between the times. Okay? So, Here's a couple other verses. Talking about the resurrection now, okay? Romans 6, 4 to 5. We therefore, or we were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Jesus Christ, or Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life here and now, right? Right now, future already. 
For if we've been united with him in death, like his, we will certainly, remember, certain, this is certain, also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Romans 8, 10, 11. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body's subject to death because of sin, the spirit, and I have that highlighted because we're going to transition in a minute, gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Guaranteed. And again, the spirit is one of the guarantees, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So we should be characterized because of this, in light of this, the fact that the resurrections happen, we should be characterized by overflowing hope because of the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. The victory is already his. Everything belongs to him. You know, I was going to talk about the scripture, but in 1 Corinthians 3, around verse 21 or 23, he says, hey guys, quit living like the world because this world and his presence form are passing away. All things are yours whether life or death, the present, the future, all these things. The world, all these things are yours because you're in Christ. All these things, past, present, future, death is yours, he says. All these things. We've already conquered it through Christ, right? So we, that's why faith, hope, and love, those are the three virtues over and over again in the New Testament that we're supposed to live. Hope is not what we usually talk about in our culture. Oh, I hope that happens. By saying that, you're essentially saying, I don't think it's going to happen. Hope in a biblical sense is a confident, joyful expectation of good things coming. In fact, usually in the context of the final eschaton coming, the second coming of Christ, hope, guarantee is going to happen. In light of this, we have to be the most hopeful people on earth because of the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead and we already have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So, so that's the one truth that determines our present experience. That's how we're supposed to live. The, <laughs> guaranteed we're going to be raised from the dead. The ends here in Jesus with the same powers living in us, living the life of the future now. Overflowing hope for the future comes from the Holy Spirit. And you're gonna, I'm going to show you a couple. Because the Holy Spirit is the evidence that the future is already present in the guarantee of its consummation. I know I'm using fancy pants words. But you guys who've been here for a while, remember, what's the one thing, I, the resurrection was the other thing, what's the other thing that, according to Jewish messianic hopes, was, was going to divide this age from the age to come? The coming of the Spirit. You guys got it. Okay? The future eschatological Spirit is here now. So that's evidence, right? That's evidence that the future's come and broken the present. He's the guarantee of the future happening. And the fact the reality that the future is here now. And that's how we're supposed to live. But look at this. Notice the word hope. I want you to notice the word hope because it's the hope by the Holy Spirit because of the fact that the Holy Spirit's come and he lives inside us. We have that hope. It's guaranteed. So this is Romans 8, to 25. We know that the whole creation's been growing as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Talking about the resurrection. For in this hope, we were saved. Past tense. Isn't that interesting? Okay. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. 
Okay, and that's Romans 8. Look at what he prays later in Romans, Romans 15, 13. One of my favorite verses because it's such a good prayer. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So what? That you would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Overflowing hope. That's how we're supposed to live. Overflowing hope. Done deal. Notice by the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection, the Holy Spirit's here. Done deal. We got to be the most hopeful people on earth because we know it's a done deal and it's a fact. That's what, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's the transition, the gift of the Spirit. Remember the two things, the two things, the resurrection, the gift of the Spirit. This is why Paul talks about them over and over and over again, talking about the already, not yet. This is evidence that the future's here now, experientially, the guarantee that it's yet to come. Okay, so the Spirit is the evidence that the eschatological promises of Paul's Jewish heritage have been fulfilled. We already talked about that. That changed everything for Paul. That changed everything for the new believers. That's why they quoted Joel uh, 2.28 in the day of Pentecost. All these promises from the Old Testament and Jeremiah and Ezekiel of the Spirit coming and Joel 2.22, it's happening now. We're not drunk as you suppose. This is to fulfill what was spoken by Joel the prophet. Right? In the last days, I'm going to pour up my spirit upon all flesh. Sons and daughters prophesy. You guys know it. Why? Because they're saying, hey, this changes everything. The end is here. The kingdom of God is broken in because the spirit's here fulfilling all these promises. We've been waiting for for hundreds of years during the time of the quote-unquote quenched spirit. Okay? So this is changes everything. This has happened now. Right? This has happened now. So for Paul, the spirit's the clear evidence that the future had already dawned. Now, we're just going to talk a little bit about this today. I want to show you, in light of this, this makes sense of the way Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we're going to talk about three metaphors he uses. And implicit in these metaphors is this already not yet idea. And you'll see what I mean. So the three metaphors Paul uses for the Holy Spirit is the down payment. Okay? And what's a down payment? Translated as deposit or pledge. This is the guarantee of the rest of the payment, right? What's a down payment? You got, if you have a down payment for a house, that's a guarantee of the fullness, right? And eventually the fullness is going to happen where you pay everything. The seal and the first fruits. I'm going to show you some scriptures that show each and every one of these, okay? So these three metaphors, all of these are eschatological images, if you think about it. Say, right, the presence of the Spirit guaranteeing the future, so each emphasized the spirit either as the present evidence of future realities or as the assurance of the final glory or both in these three metaphors. The already not yet. So let's just go in each one in turn. What's a down payment? I already talked about this a little bit. But it's a technical term in the Greek. Back, It actually, the word, uh, I forget what it is right now, a baron or something. It doesn't matter. But what it is, it's the first installment of a total amount due guaranteeing the rest of the payment. That's what it meant in the Greek. So that's why I use the word deposit or down payment in English. So in other words, the spirit is God's down payment. His pledge into our lives of the absolute certainty and reality of the future. That's why you always see hope connected with the Holy Spirit, overflowing hope. Okay? That's our confidence. That's why Paul always appeals to the Spirit 
usually always in terms of salvation. We'll talk all about that someday. He always appeals. His way of asking if you were saved, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by hearing, believing what you heard? Have you received the Spirit? That's his way of asking, are you saved? Because that is the evidence that you're saved as you got the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians 3, 1 to 5, by the way. So this metaphor emphasizes the already and the not yet of the present existence. So here's just a few scriptures showing this, so you guys know. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Look at this. He anointed us, he set a seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, what? Guaranteeing what's to come. The already, not yet. Holy Spirit, already, future, not yet. But the fullness is coming. That's a guarantee because you have the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now the one who's fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as what? A deposit, down payment, Erebon, that's the word, guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And you also who were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the praise and glory, or to, uh, sorry, to the praise of his glory, talking about the resurrection. Okay, so that's over and over again, the already, not yet, but the Holy Spirit's evidence of the already. That the future is already here. Now, a seal, this is a term, it was a stamped, and you guys probably seen old movies where they have like a letter or a scroll, and then there's this wax, and they stamp it. It's the seal of ownership. That's what this is talking about. Okay, so it was a stamped impression wax which denoted ownership and authenticity, and carrying with it the protection of the owner. Okay, so the seal is the spirit. He, this metaphor again that he uses for the spirit. By whom God has marked believers and claimed them as his own, both present and future. You were sealed with the spirit. God's your owner. <laughs> so here's, you'll recognize these verses, but the, the word seal appears in them as well, right? So 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now it is God who makes us both, uh, both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us with the spirit. His set his seal of ownership, remember, on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a, a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Same with Ephesians. You'll notice when you believed, 1 verse uh, 13, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, right? Who is a deposit, again. And then last but not least, Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, future, guaranteed. Holy Spirit's a seal. And last but not least, the metaphors, the first fruits. What's a first, think about what the image of first fruits, right? The first fruits of the harvest, the final harvest. So the first sheaf of God's pledge to us of the final harvest. Okay, the Holy Spirit in us is what he's saying. There's a final harvest, but you got the first fruits of the final age of the Spirit. 
Same metaphor, if you remember, that Paul used previously of Christ's resurrection as a guarantee of ours. You remember when we talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Same way the spirit is the first fruits of our final resurrection as well. Okay, so this reflects the tension of the present existence is already not yet and the guarantee of our certain future. You guys see how this all fits in into that already not yet perspective. The kingdom's here now, the kingdom's not yet. Okay, so this is different language Paul uses than Jesus, but you see how it, it, it all fits into this idea, or this framework, rather. So here's, the, here's we, we already uh, gave this verse, Romans 8, 22 to 23, but verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. I want to point out something here. Notice this. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. What's that saying? Our adoption's not yet. Okay? We're waiting to be adopted. And he says that that's the redemption of our bodies. Keep that in mind. Okay, this is Romans 22, 23. Look at what he says a few verses earlier. Talking about the already not yet. Look at this. Wait a minute, Paul. Right here, a few verses earlier in Romans 8, 14 to 17, look at what he says. Already we're adopted. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are, present tense, already the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received, past tense, brought about your adoption to sonship. Wait, I thought you, right? How is that so, Paul? You're saying it happened. We're already adopted by the Spirit. But then you're saying by the Spirit, we have the first fruits because we're waiting our adoption. Which is it? Already not yet, right? Already you're adopted. Already you're children of God. Not yet. We wait by the Spirit eagerly for the final redemption of our bodies that'll take place in the second coming of Christ, the resurrection. Okay. So, and by him, by the Spirit, we crowd Abba Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, present tense, the children of God. Now, if we are God's children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, and indeed we share in his sufferings already, in order that we may also share in his glory, not yet. It's all throughout these scriptures, already not yet. I just want to talk about this quickly. Someday I'll, I'm sure, give a whole uh, sermon on this because it's so important in Paul. You guys know, well, you'll see with some scriptures. I'm just going to do this quick. The flesh-spirit contrast. You guys know what I'm talking about when Paul talks about flesh versus spirit? He's, that's totally understood under this eschatological framework, totally. The age of the spirit, we're supposed to live by the spirit the, in the, the future, now, in the present. So when he's talking about flesh... This idea came in the intertestamental period. I'll, I'll say that for another day. But this is what he's talking about, the already not yet, when he's using that language. And I'll show you what I mean. So because of the sentence of death, no one can live any longer according to the flesh. So the flesh in the Greek, the word sarks. So you see over and over again, he uses the word katasarka versus katapneuma, which is by the spirit. And it, it becomes important, you'll see, we'll talk about it in the future, when he talks about quit looking at things through a worldly point of view, he's, that word is actually sarks, katasarka. But we, we interpret it in English in a certain way so we understand what he's saying, but it's the same language. 
But anyway, what's flesh? Living out of one's self, sinful self-centeredness, which belongs to this age and belongs to the past in light of the fact that Jesus came and the Holy Spirit came. Okay, so that, the flesh has been broken. Its back has been broken at the cross. Okay, so the, the flesh perspective of this age is no longer viable. To be in Christ means the old order is gone and behold, the new creation has come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Okay, so the flesh now belongs to the past. Okay, the flesh belongs to the past, but not totally. It's already, but not yet, okay? That's the tension. So we who now have received the Spirit live in keeping with the Spirit by the power of the Spirit, but we live in the present age in a world that's still full of evidence that people are catasarchic. They're living by the flesh. And we live between the times. So we're called to live by the Spirit in the present time when everyone else in this evil age is living by the flesh. So these, what I want to say, this is important. These phrases don't refer to physical versus spiritual existence. They're actually, but living under the influence of two totally radically opposite powers, so to speak. Okay? And we'll develop that in the future. But the the one, the sinful nature has been decisively crippled by the death and resurrection of Christ. As with the old age to which it belongs, the flesh is on its way out. And it's been rendered ineffective through death. And now I'm going to show you three scriptures or so. In light of that, remember, we're talking about this age and the age to come. The age to come is the age of the spirit. This age is the age of the flesh. So Romans 7, 4 to 6. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Look at this. For when we were, past tense, in the realm of the flesh, past tense, right? This age, past tense, when we were in that realm, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, present tense, you got the spirit, Jesus raised from the dead. Now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. Catapneuma, the age to come, the future now. We live by the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Romans 8, uh, verse 9. You, however, look at this. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. You're living in the future now. The Spirit of the future is living inside of you, and you're living that now in the present. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and look at this, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That's the one defining characteristic that makes you a Christian, is whether you have the Spirit or not. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing else. In fact, Paul calls us spirit people. The word spiritual is an adjective that means those belonging to the Spirit. We'll get on to that later, some other day. Spirit people. We're called to be spirit people. Why? Because it's the spirit. The future's come now through Christ, and we're supposed to be living in the age of the spirit now. Galatians 5. So I, 16. So I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires was contrary to the spirit, and the spirit is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, but 
are so that you're not able uh, to do whatever you want. But if you were led by the Spirit, you're no longer under the law. Verse 22, for a few verses later. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Look at this. Those who belong to Christ have crucified, past tense, the flesh with its passions and desires. He's not talking about physical. He's talking about a whole system of the, uh, age, this age, the evil present age, the flesh. Since what? We live by the Spirit now. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's, this is what he's talking about. That's why it's so important we learn how to be led by the Spirit. Living from the future now in the present tense by the power of the Spirit. So thus for Paul, I'm going to conclude, all of present life is conditioned by this twofold reality. Through the resurrection of Christ and the subsequent gift of the Spirit, God has set the future in motion so that we're already citizens of our homeland. We're already there through the Spirit. Yet we live out the future in the present. This is why above anything else, we're supposed to be quote-unquote spirit people. It's it's the word Paul uses. Pneumatikos. We are forgiven, accepted, loved by God, given the down payment of eternity now, living the life of the future by the power of the Spirit. So what should we do in light of all this? That's a good question. What does all this mean? It changes everything. Change everything for Paul should change everything for us. The New Testament position is clearly right there in the middle, the radical middle, already not yet. We are supposed to live in the radical middle. Our lives are being so absolutely marked by the realities of the future that we live in a new kind of way. Our values are the values of the future. Everything we do is in light of the fact that Jesus has come, the Holy Spirit has come, we're living the life of the future now, present tense. Everything. This is why Paul says stuff like this, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven already. Our citizenship, we're citizens of heaven now, okay? And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, we transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Not yet. Citizens now already, but not yet. So our true identity is that we are citizens of another world. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the age to come now. That's where our passport is, the age to come. Right? We're foreigners in the present age, Paul says. We live in this present world as a colony of heaven, and if people want to know what heaven's like, they're supposed to look at us and say, wow, that's what heaven's like. Because we're supposed to be living from the future. We're supposed to be living from heaven now. And people are supposed to look at us and say, wow, I want that because that's what heaven's like. In light of this. Living that life now. So we're, we are to be people who are already loving and forgiving one another and accepting freely in the way that we were accepted and loved in Christ. Heaven now. We ought to be so full of the spirit of the living God that everything we are and do is the life of the future lived out now. Our citizenship is in heaven and not here. Hence, the presence-driven life. This is not just a catchy-catch phrase. This is what we're called to be as Christians. This is it. Living the life of the future now. What does that look like? 
That's why I'm spending so much time on this. Having this framework is so important for us to understand. This is how the early Christians lived and how they thought and what, what, how they lived their life in light of this. This is how we're supposed to live. It affects our values. It affects our perspective on everything. It affects our hope levels. The presence-driven life. Amen. <laughs> so, in light of that, I want to just say a quick prayer and then we're going to, I don't know, do something. All right. Father, we just thank you so much for your kingdom that it's here now. We thank you so much for the spirit that it's here now. We thank you that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in us. And if that same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is living inside us, he's also going to give life to our mortal bodies. Father, we thank you so much that in light of the fact that you came and were raised again and that the Holy Spirit came, that we are to live as citizens of heaven future now. Help us to live the values of the future now. Help us to live as citizens of heaven. Help us to demonstrate what heaven looks like to the people now. Help us to, to continue in the commission of the overthrow of Satan, to live as people who are so eschatologically minded that to live is Christ, to die is gain, because we are so certain of the future that you've already purchased for us for the death, resurrection of Christ and by the gift of the Spirit. Help us to live as spirit people now, the life of the future now. Father, I just ask that as we continue on this journey of what it means to be eschatological people living the life of the future in the present that you give us the grace to do so, that everything's in light of the grace of God living that way. I ask for that grace to be present and that you give us a fuller revelation of what that looks like in the present, that we would live not as 21st century people, but as totally eschatological people living in the 21st century, showing people what heaven is like in the present so that they'll be attracted to you, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in our lives, in our church, in our city, as it is in heaven. We thank you for that, Father. We just ask that you bless each and every one right now as we go out and, and continue to seek first your kingdom of heaven in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so what we're going to...